Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. We've been in the, the middle of this series called Who? You can see a silhouette to my right that's been sort of slowly filling in with different kinds of individuals, illustrative of the fact that God has made us all different, in case you haven't noticed that already. God's wired us in different ways. God's given us different gifts. And God intends for all of us to keep those identities while simultaneously acting as one body. Now, the only way that's going to happen is if we're walking in the Spirit, number one, and walking with a good, healthy degree of self-awareness, number two. John Calvin put it this way. He said, true wisdom consists of two parts, knowledge of God on the one hand and knowledge of self on the other. And we do a pretty good job in the evangelical church of bringing awareness of God, teaching you what the scriptures teach about God. Maybe not such a good job of teaching what the scriptures would commend to us about awareness of the self. And if you're not self-aware, uh, it, it could cause all kinds of different issues. And so we're in the middle right now, smack in the middle of a nine-week series leading us right up to Christmas that deals with the various ways that God has wired us. There's actually a test, the website uh, link to which is on the front of your program. Uh, and if you'd like to go take that, there's a nominal charge. You, you can begin to discover through this tool that we think has been very useful here around the Covenant family, uh, where you might land, not just what your dominant style is, but all the various ways in which you might find yourself reacting to various situations and peoples. And today, we're going to talk about the individual that if you took that test, and the kind of person we're going to talk about today is you, your highest tool is going to be number seven. That's the enthusiast. The enthusiast. This is the people person. This is the social butterfly. In fact, as I think about this individual, uh, I think about this picture. Sometimes when you, you put a picture up, the least notable, noticeable thing is often the most important. So I got up really, really close to this brick house so that maybe you could see what's being emphasized as the most important thing. What is it? Yeah, it's the mortar. It's that gray stuff in between the bricks. Because let's be honest, you could actually build, if you had enough bricks, something that looked like the Taj Mahal, and it would be beautiful. But can we also be honest enough to admit that if there's no mortar holding all that together, you don't have a wall. All you got is a pile of bricks, right? Good stiff wind, and that sucker's gone. And so when we talk about mortar, we're talking about what actually holds the thing together. And when it comes to the church family, for that matter, when it comes to any real area of life, the mortar for holding all those things together is relationships. You, you can't really have, no matter what your structure, how superb it is, how effective your systems are, nothing happens without relationships. For example, do you notice there's a great big old ginormous Christmas tree out in the foyer this morning? Yeah, we had some wonderful folks show up on Thursday night, work late into the night, working on that, putting that together. Now, you can be the best organizer in the world. You can put together a plan to have all of these decorations that you see around you, and even the ones that are still coming. By the way, they're not done, and Terry Neal could probably use your help. Just see her today if you'd like to, to, to jump in and be a part of that team. But, but none of that happens without people, does it? It doesn't matter how well organized you are. If the people don't show up, it's not happening. And, and so this is the kind of person that brings the people together, okay? 
And again, if you scored a seven, this is likely your dominant style. These are people that radiate optimism. You ever met anybody like that? They can just fill a room with light just by their mere presence. Their excitement is contagious. They're funny and playful and imaginative. But best of all, these people will encourage you. And they'll do it better than anybody else that we're going to talk about in this series. And if that describes you, there are several biblical characters whom, with whom you can identify. Um, and so what I want to do over the next several minutes is I just want to spend some time together looking at three of these people and kind of extrapolating from their lives some of the characteristics that we find in an enthusiast. And then just like all the others, I want to issue some warnings because this personality, like all the others, it has a little bit of an underbelly that you want to be aware of because you're a sinner. You're in the process of becoming more like Jesus in a way that is uniquely you. In order to do that, you need to know what your more sinful propensities might be. And we're going to start with a man that most of us probably know from the scriptural story in the book of Acts, a man by the name of Barnabas. Barnabas is a native of Cyprus. He was a Jew of the tribe of Levi. And the first time we meet him is in Acts chapter 8 in the middle uh, of a rather controversial issue. Uh, the Jerusalem church has met. They've got this man named Saul of Tarsus who up until quite literally this moment has, has been uh, terrorizing the church, killing Christians, locking them up. And now this same man claims to be one of them. He wants to come into their fellowship. And as you can imagine, that creates some tenseness, right? I mean, there's, there's some things there, like I, we're not too sure about this guy. We really don't know if he's a believer. Now, now we believe because we've got all this history from the book of Acts and Paul's letters, and we can see that that conversion was genuine, but they didn't know that at the time. And sometimes it's difficult for us to reach back 2,000 years and actually identify with and appreciate that struggle that these Christians went through. Is this guy really one of us? Is this another Trojan horse that's going to come in the middle of it? And so now that he claims to follow Jesus, they're wondering what to do. And in the middle of this, Barnabas speaks, and we read the following in Acts chapter 9. Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them <coughs> how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. This is a guy, when everybody else is looking at Saul with one eye shut, who sees the best rather than the worst, and who says, this man really is a follower of Jesus. This is a man that will vouch for you. So when everybody else is looking around at this guy with, with legitimate suspicion, can we just admit that? I mean, can you imagine if Al-Zarqawi suddenly waltzed in here? and said to all of us publicly, I'm a follower of Jesus. I have seen the light. I want to repent of all of my terrorist ways. I want to repent of the things that I believe that are false, and I want to embrace Jesus as God, and I want to follow him as a Christian. That'd be, that'd be tough, wouldn't it? That'd be tough. Now, can God convert anybody? Now, that wasn't loud enough. Come on now, you got more faith than that. Can God convert anybody? Yes, yes he can. He can absolutely do that. We see it because of what he did with Saul of Tarsus. But at the same time, this is Al-Zarqar we were talking about. So if he comes in here and does that the way Saul did with the church at Jerusalem, we're like, we want to believe you, but dude, you got to leave that backpack outside, right? I mean, there's just, there's going to be a little suspicion there. 
And, and in, the mo- in a moment like that, you need an enthusiast who will do what Barnabas did, which is when everybody else is assuming the worst, there was somebody that was willing to assume the best. That's the enthusiast. That's Barnabas. And to the extent, the extent to which he influenced Saul's life, and Saul would end up going on to be known as Paul, and later on he would write this to the church at Corinth. Some of you even had this read at your wedding. Love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. I have to wonder if, as Paul was penning those words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, if at least one of the things not foremost in his mind would have been his friend Barnabas. In that moment, when nobody would believe me, when everybody thought I was a Trojan horse, here was the one guy who had seen enough that he decided to assume the best. Barnabas is going to go on. He's going to become a missionary with Paul to Antioch. The church at Jerusalem sends both of them out under the leadership of both Paul and Barnabas. The church explodes with growth, and together he and Paul will minister there for about a year. And then by the time we get to Acts 11, he has helped lead relief efforts during a famine. And for the next two chapters, we read about how he and Paul preach together from synagogue to synagogue, and they encourage the church, all having been sent out to plant other churches, to reach other people for the Lord Jesus by the church at Antioch. And one of the last major contributions that Barnabas makes was at the Jerusalem council. As we fast forward to Acts chapter 15, there are men from Judea who began teaching circumcision as a means of salvation. This is something that every man has to undergo if he's going to call himself a follower of Jesus. Now, it would be easy again 2,000 years later to look at that argument and think, how dumb is that? How stupid can you be? Pastor, we know that circumcision because we've got the full canon of Scripture. <coughs> and we know we know because of the way these various covenants fits together, fit together that, that this is not a requirement for men or for women anymore. It is faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ. How could they have been so dumb? And we forget in the middle of that that this was a serious discussion in the first century. We forget, first of all, that Christianity in its very earliest days was overwhelmingly to the point of being almost exclusively Jewish. These are people of the Torah. These are people who believe the Bible as the Word of God. These are people who believe Genesis 12 when they read it. They believe Genesis 17 when they read it. They take it literally. And so they're struggling over this. To the Jewish mind in the first century, this is no small matter. And so this is a worthy debate. Sometimes we get into things, and, and it's, I, I get that people can be ugly and uncharitable, and we don't want to do anything like that around here. But at the same time, there are issues that Scripture talks about that we need to discuss. And sometimes someone will blithely dismiss that. Well, that's doctrine, and doctrine doesn't matter. Well, that's stupid, okay? Not to put too fine a point on it. Uh, that's just dumb. Yet there is no understanding of Jesus without understanding doctrine. Jesus is defined by the scriptures. The the scriptures contain. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, You don't separate these two. Or whatever Jesus you end up with is going to look a whole heck of a lot more like you than he does like the real Jesus. Doctrine matters. But what I want you to see in the midst of this is Barnabas is reminding the church that in the midst of this, the reason we want to get our doctrine right is not just so we can cross every T and dot every I. It's because people matter. People matter. And so at the end of Acts 15, this particular account at least, we read the following. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul. 
and they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So in the midst of this all-important conversation about doctrine, it's Barnabas who gives testimony to what is happening among the people in Antioch. Let me tell you what God is doing among these people. This is one of the most valuable things about an enthusiast. They will consistently remind us that ministry is about people, and it is, isn't it? It really is. At the end of the day, this is about people. This is because Jesus loves people. This is because Jesus died for people. This is why we need, among other people in the church, the enthusiast. And in Barnabas, you see someone who becomes this visionary leader who is willing to assume the best about people. Some of you have people like this in your family. You have people like this at your workplace. You may even be fortunate enough to have a boss like this. And every time you walk away, you feel encouraged. You feel valued. You feel emboldened you've probably been in the presence of an enthusiast because they're like a magnet for you. You just want to be around them. How many of you know somebody like that? And like, if they call you and they just want to hang out, you may be a really busy person, but you don't even need anything. You don't even need an agenda with them. You'll clear your calendar to be with them. Why? Because they're fun to be around. I love that person. I love that man. I love that woman. I just want to go hang out with them. That's the enthusiast. And Barnabas isn't the only one. In fact, one chapter after the Jerusalem Council, we run into another enthusiast type. Her name is Lydia. In Acts 16, Paul gets a dream of a man of Macedonia saying, come over and help us. And so he answers that as he interprets it as God's call to cross the Aegean Sea. And the first place he lands is this town called Philippi. And he meets this woman named Lydia. She's a Gentile who worshiped as a Jew. And we read of her conversion in Acts 16, 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And so you have this woman who's converted, who is, quite simply as expressed by Luke in the book of Acts, a seller of purple. Now that may not mean a whole lot to you, but it gives us some great insight into the entrepreneurial ability and identity of this woman. This is a very prosperous entrepreneur of a woman. She had a very lucrative business selling to royalty and to the rich, okay? And that's not good or bad. That's just what is. That's who she happened to be. Uh, If you're an individual and you're a businessman or businesswoman and your primary product is Christine Kane jewelry, you're probably not going to have clients that make minimum wage, right? You're just not. If you sell BMWs for a living, you've probably never sat down and gone over financial options with a 16-year-old kid who's just working his first job at Food Lion. You're just not, right? The people that you tend to walk in circles with, that you tend to rub elbows with, they tend to be fairly wealthy and they tend to be fairly powerful. That was the circles in which Lydia walked. And, And now that she's a believer, she's going to leverage that influence for the kingdom, in such a significant way that she's actually and most likely mentioned outside of Scripture. In Homer's Iliad, in fact, we find the occasion of two women in this same area very famous for their purple cloth. And Lydia also had a large home there in Philippi. Likely wasn't the only one that she owned. And after she was baptized, she invites Paul and Silas in to use her home as a center of ministry, as a gathering place for the church at Philippi, which means... It had a pretty doggone big living room in in all likelihood. And Philippi becomes one of the few churches as a result from which Paul will actually accept a financial offering. Uh, If you'll remember, Paul didn't always accept money. 
Sometimes he turned it away. Sometimes he never asked for it. This was the one church with whom he had such a close relationship that he would accept a gift from them and he would view that gift as a fragrant offering to the Lord. In fact, look at what he writes to the church at Philippi. And this is some years after Lydia's conversion. He says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Now you wonder, where in the world did that come from? How does a church develop that kind of culture? How does that happen? I had the privilege for several years of training church planters on five different continents. And of course, when you go to Africa or you go to Asia or you go to Europe, there are things you're going to say differently in some places. There's things you're going to include in some context that you're going to leave out in others because you need to respect cultural context. But there was one thing I used to say, regardless of where I was standing on planet Earth, when I would train those individuals to go out and start churches, I would always tell them this, your first 12 will determine your next 1,200. All right, if you're going to plant this church and pastor it for the next 30 years of your life and invest yourself in this, the first 12 people you allow in to become a part of that core, they will determine the DNA of the next 1,200 who walk through the door. That starts with you as the planter. So whoever you are, whatever sin you got in your life, you better get it out unless you want to see a whole lot more of it out in front of you every Sunday, a few years out. Because you don't always replicate what you say. More often than not, you replicate who you are and you replicate who you, what you do. Which, by the way, is why your pastor needs your prayers, and I hope you're doing that on a daily basis. I hope you're doing what Spurgeon would commend you to do, that you're getting all the good you can out of me, and that you're praying every single day that the Lord would put more good into me. I need that. I need, and you need that. Because whoever I am gets replicated, and whoever I attract, and whoever I let in the door, that gets replicated. That's just true, and it's been true for 2,000 years. And so when you look at the church of Philippi, and you see this kind of warmth, and this kind of joy, and this kind of encouragement, and this kind of generosity, where do you think that came from? You know, I've read to you pretty much every single verse in the Bible that describes Lydia explicitly. But there's so much we can know about this woman, not by looking at so much of what Scripture explicitly says about her, but it just by reading the atmosphere that she influenced and leveraged her influence in, in that region and among that church. Let me tell you why Philippi was that kind of place, because it was started by that kind of woman, an enthusiast who assumed the best, who took great joy, who leveraged what influence she had, who invested in other people. This was Lydia. The same type of DNA that spirit-filled enthusiasts can bring to the body of Christ. This is what God has called you to do. You have an entrepreneurial spirit that calls people together, reproduces disciples, and does it with a great sense of joy. And that makes you an attractive person to a lot of other people in the sense that people just want to be around you. They like you. They like you. And then... A couple of chapters later, there's one more I want us to look at. Another woman named Priscilla. She, along with her husband Aquila, who was a tent maker, more than likely were among some of the first Christian converts in Rome. That's where they're from originally. Not long after their conversion, the emperor Claudius incites persecution of the Christians in Rome. And so they find themselves as refugees. They're displaced. They finally land at Corinth. That's where they meet the apostle Paul. And they will work together with him in planting and developing the church at Corinth. 18 months after that, they'll voluntarily pack up everything they own and move with Paul to Ephesus 
to start another church. And it's in the city of Ephesus, in the middle of that meeting, where, by the way, she too opened up, like Lydia, her home and allowed the church at, at, at Ephesus to worship in that, in that space, that she encounters a young preacher named Apollos. He is powerful. He is awesome. He is articulate. But he's also just slightly un- underdeveloped as a preacher. Uh, the scripture tells us in the book of Acts that he knew of the baptism of John, but really nothing beyond that. And, and, as, and as Priscilla listens to him preach, she hears all of the good, but she also sees there's some things that, that just need to be corrected. He doesn't get everything right. Again, doctrine is important. And it doesn't matter how passionate or sincere you are. If you're wrong or you leave things out, you're going to do even unintended damage to the body of Christ. Priscilla doesn't want to see that. But she also sees the promise in this young man. She sees that he's not one of the bad guys. He's one of the good guys. So she doesn't stand up in the middle of the service and go, heretic! All right? Instead, she pulls him aside. She grabs her husband, and the three of them get in a huddle. And she spends some time developing him, investing in him, to the point that it's not too many verses later that we read the following, he, that is Apollos, powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So you've got an enthusiast who knows that people matter, who knows that ministry is all about people, investing in people in a way that made them better equipped and powerful. And then a few years later, somewhere around A.D. 55, Priscilla and her husband are finally able to return to their place of origin, the city of Rome. And it's there where they receive a letter, what you and I know is the letter to the Romans. And Paul will write the following in the closing verses of that letter. Greet. Got to back up one, guys. Greet Prisca, that is Priscilla, and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Is that the way you want your life to end? With a commendation like that? Greet these individuals. Let me tell you what these individuals have done. Let me tell you about their investment in me. That's the life of this resourceful, spirit-filled, enthusiast of a woman named Priscilla. And when we're talking about Priscilla, when we're talking about Lydia, when we're talking about Barnabas, we're, we're looking at the lives of people who are people of adventure. They're risk takers. They genuinely love other people. Their enthusiasm is contagious wherever they go. That's what you can do as a spirit-filled enthusiast. Now, with all that said, you, like everybody else in the body of Christ, are a sinner. You're fallen. And there are some things that you're more prone to than perhaps your neighbor is because God has wired you as an enthusiast. And so I want to give you, by backing up a few chapters, this, this, a look at, at, at where some of this, this fleshly enthusiasm can lead. And I want to start with this dispute that occurs in Acts 16 between Barnabas and Paul because this is one of the more painful descriptions of a broken relationship that we read about in the New Testament. It really is. And it's ironic, isn't it? Because when we talk about the enthusiast, we're talking about somebody who knows that people matter, who knows that relationships are the mortar that holds it all together. And yet it is an enthusiast that busts up the relationship here. 
And we see this, and, and remember who this is. Just, just to, to emphasize to you how painful this breakup is, these are two men who vouched for each other. They'd served time in prison together. They'd planted churches together. They'd solved problems together. They had taken other warring parties that were eating each other's throats and brought them together. All those things they had done together. How much more painful is it when someone you've been through all of that with, you arrive at the kind of impasse that we see in Acts chapter 16. But this is what we see. It's exactly what we see. They're preparing to head back to revisit the places they've been. And Barnabas says, let's take John Mark with us. Let's take John Mark. Now, the issue here is that John Mark had been on a, on a trip with them earlier, and he bailed on them. Guy had no follow-through. And eventually, apparently, he bailed on them at a time when they needed him the most. And so Paul's response, we read about it here. There arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. Now, there's, there's a couple of mistakes. If you're more familiar with the storyline of Scripture and you've heard this story before, you've reflected on this story before and the way really it ought to be applied in the life of the church, there's a couple of mistakes that we make in this situation. We read it and we assume two things wrongly. Number one is we assume, we assume that this was okay. This is just one of those things that happens. The way I know that is oftentimes there'll be an argument within the church or in another church somewhere or among two people who are followers of Jesus. And at the end of the day, if they can't reconcile, the conclusion is, well, it was just a Paul and Barnabas kind of situation. We're assuming there that nobody's wrong and that this is okay and, and that sometimes it just happens. Sometimes people just can't get along. Here's the second thing we assume, that there wasn't a right or a wrong view here. That it's, well, it was just a dispute. One had this point of view, one had that point of view. Certainly that can happen. But the mistake is to assume that that's what's happening here. So let me address those, okay, by, by telling you this, first of all. It is possible. We, we don't get this sometimes. We tend to see people as either Savior or Antichrist. It's like there's no in-between anymore. And here's what we need to remind ourselves. It is entirely possible for otherwise godly men, like the two godly men we just read about here, to be at odds like this. That doesn't mean that the division is godly. Okay? It is possible for otherwise godly men to act in an ungodly way. Amen? Yeah. You can do that. And that's exactly what may be happening here. Here's the other thing that you need to know. Division in the body of Christ is never acceptable. Ever. Ever. Not over something that's stupid, at least. Okay? Deity of Jesus, bodily resurrection, yeah, there's some things we're going to stand on. And, yep, that means sometimes people are going to find themselves outside the fellowship of faith. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when two otherwise godly individuals who worship the same crucified, resurrected Savior conclude, well, it's okay if we do what Paul and Barnabas did. Hear me well, brothers and sisters. Jesus Christ, our Lord, prayed in John 17 that you and me and everybody else in this body would possess the same degree of unity as exists between the first and the second persons of the Trinity. Any act or attitude that contramands the very prayer request to the Lord Jesus is sin. 
The body of Christ should never be divided in that way. So let's, let's cease with this idea of, well, it's just a Paul and Barnabas. This was a big deal, a really big deal. Here's the other thing you need to know. The text of Scripture doesn't just kind of leave this hanging out there as if no one party was more culpable than the other. John Mark was not just a ministry partner who deserted Paul and Barnabas, although he was, which means he, he himself may have been a fleshly enthusiast. Things aren't fun anymore. I, I, gotta go, I gotta go, right? You ever had that, like in the middle of everybody working, all of a sudden you turn around and it seems to be, always be the same people? That I, 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 I gotta go, I gotta go. You know who I'm talking about? Don't look at anybody, okay? But, but you know what I'm talking about? That's, that's what's happening here. Here's something else you need to know about John Mark in case you didn't already know it. He was Barnabas' cousin. Yeah, how about a little family drama at Christmas? That's what's going on here. And so here's the crux of the debate. Let's take John Mark, and Paul apparently isn't taking this as personally as Barnabas is. Later on in 2 Timothy 4.11, we get a sense of that. At the end of his life, he asked for John Mark's company. It's like, this isn't, this isn't personal, but, but the dude deserted us when we needed him the most, and I can't take a chance on that happening again, okay? You don't get a mulligan for doing something like that. Not on a mission that's this important. Barnabas, you're right. Ministry is about people, and those people out there, they are too important for us to rely on somebody who's already proven himself unreliable. We're not going to do that. The mission is too important. So the text of Scripture isn't abundantly clear here, but it is not, it's also not entirely neutral to this debate. And even the commentaries, if you pick them up, they pick up on the fact that the weight of the evidence seems to actually vindicate Paul's position, all right? to which Barnabas can only reply, but he's my cousin. He's my cousin. This is fleshly enthusiasm. It values the individual. And it, it, it's worth, by the way, also mentioning at this point that tension had already been built, building by this point between Barnabas and Paul over something that transpired in Antioch because Peter and Barnabas, after making that compelling case for how Gentiles should be included, full inclusion and equality within the body of Christ between Jew and Gentile, that some of the Jewish brothers had very quickly after that, so influenced Barnabas that he, he retreats from the company of the Gentiles for a moment because he doesn't want the conflict. He doesn't want to have to deal with it. This is what we see in these, an event, in these events. It's an enthusiastic kind of individual, but they're out of balance. Now, here, the great thing about these individuals is they remind us that ministry is about people, but if they become unbalanced, they can allow one of those people to sabotage something that could otherwise serve hundreds of people. You see the difference? And so you got to watch yourself here if you're an enthusiast. And here's why that is. Because in your heart of hearts, the thing that you struggle with if you're this kind of individual, you want to avoid pain. That's, that's what you, and, and when I say pain, I don't mean 
broken leg, car accident. I mean, relational pain. You just want to avoid it. If you're married to an enthusiast, they're the hardest person in the world to get into a fight with. Right? What's the matter? Nothing. That kind of thing. I just, I don't want to talk about it. I want to back away from it. I don't want to engage it. it was, see, this is one of the ways all these different individuals within the body of Christ, we can help each other find the happy medium. Next week, we're actually going to get to the commander, which is, that's, that's what I am, okay? Now, I don't fear conflict. I'm not conflict avoidant, but I do tend to, unless I've got people around me that check me, always approach conflict locked and loaded. And that's not healthy either, Okay. That every conflict is an enemy to overcome. That, that's not, okay? So I've got, I've got elders around me. Pastor, put the gun back in the holster. It's really not that big of a deal. Just put it, you know, because you need people like that, all right? For the enthusiast, it's the exact opposite problem. It's, dude, you've got to face this. You've got to face this. And Barnabas isn't willing to do this. I don't know if it's just because, well, he's family or, or whatever's going on. But they're allowing this to happen. And so if you've got an enthusiast in the flesh, you've got someone who, well, they're like this person. How many of you know who this is? Here's the scary thing about my generation. We all wanted to be this guy. We all wanted to be able to cut school, drive a Ferrari, do all that stuff, and totally get away with it. All right. But if you take all the humor out of it, and that, it was a funny movie, I'll grant you that. But take all of the humor out of it. How do you describe Ferris Bueller in exactly the same way that you describe any enthusiast who's walking in the flesh? Superficial, irresponsible, inconsistent, unreliable. You can't count on them. Okay? Patrick Lencioni is the founder of the Table Group. Uh, he's a business guru. We've actually used a lot of his materials, really good, for, uh, for example, for our, our annual evals, 360 evals that we do with our staff. Um, and he's got a profile of what this individual looks like at work. He calls them the lovable slacker, all right? Somebody that everybody likes them, that you love hanging out with them at the water cooler. They bring you your coffee just like you want it. They, they take care of you, but, but they may or may not always do their job. And so they can be some of the most frustrating people on the planet because on the surface, they seem humble and they're really good relationally, but there's not a lot of internal drive there. They, they're always, if you've got one of those jobs where there's always like a big table and a bunch of people around it making plans and all that, the, 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 the non-resource of the fleshly enthusiast is the person who's always got all the great grandiose ideas and you only got to work with them about three weeks until you realize they're never going to do any of it. You know that person? Never going to happen. Or if we decide, yep, let's do that, we're going to be eyeballs deep in doing it, and they're going to be throwing another idea at us. Like, it can be one of those really crazy things. And it's, it's somebody who, who they do just enough work to make it hard for you, if you're their boss, to do something about their mediocrity. Because they're frustrating. It's probably what happened with, between Barnabas and Paul. Yeah. You, you, you work with anybody like that, don't raise your hand. Like you're in the middle of a project and you're like, I think I'm doing most of this guy's work. And they like him and they don't like me. What's that all about? What's that all about? Uh, but prior to entering vocational ministry, I worked for Dow Chemical. Any of you guys use their bathroom cleaner? 
All right. I used to help design the machines that made that stuff. So it was cool. It was a fun job. And we had this guy named Tommy that worked with us. Tommy was on the mechanical crew. So he would respond to mechanical issues on the line and things like that. And Tommy, he just had to be one of these kind of guys. And I'm going to tell you why. Came in in his uniform every morning, bright and early, clocking in seven o'clock sharp. And, and there were always three things you saw when every single time you saw Tommy, the first thing you saw was a great big encouraging smile. He'd call you by your first name. This is 200 plus people in this plant. He knew everybody in it. The second thing you would see was a big wave. And the third thing you would see is perpetual motion. I mean, that guy, he was always moving. Hey, how you doing? How you doing? Hey, how you doing? How you? That, that's what he did. We were always seeing Tommy in motion. We were always seeing Tommy smiling. We were always seeing Tommy waving. We were always seeing Tommy being friendly. And we were all sitting in the break room one day when it occurred to us, we've never seen Tommy work. Like, does he, one guy actually said, does he just clock in and run laps around the plant? Like, I've never seen him underneath a line trying to, I've never seen him on an injection mold. When it went down, there's always somebody else out there. I've never seen this guy work. I'm not accusing Tommy of that, but let's, let's assume for a moment that that's true. That would be an enthusiast that's walking in the flesh. You can't do it. At their worst, enthusiasts can become escapists. Because again, you're pain avoidant. I don't want pain. I don't want to get too deep in the weeds with this. So you get nervous, depressed, intimidated, and you run from the problem. Sometimes if you've got the means, you can do that literally. I know people like that. They get all bent out of shape. Next thing I know, they're in Ocean City or they're in Vegas or they're, it's okay to go to Ocean City and go to Vegas, but that's fine. You can afford it. That's fine. Have fun. But if you're using that as your drug to numb the pain of a bad relationship in West Virginia, you're doing it wrong. Okay? Am I meddling yet? Yeah. You're doing it wrong. Don't use it. You may pride yourself on the fact that you're not hooked on the bottle or the pill, but you're hooked on the airplane tickets. Like, because every time it, every time something happens, a device comes down, like you're gone somewhere. Maybe you don't have the means to do that, but you find other ways of escapism. Maybe you're not jumping on an airplane. Maybe you're jumping somewhere else in your mind and you allow your imagination to take you to places that you're never going to go and to scenarios that are never going to transpire. And, and the only reason you're really doing it is to, to escape the thing that's right in front of you that God is calling you to deal with and you're getting very little accomplished as a result of it. In the most extreme cases, Walking in the flesh in this way results in horrible betraying sin. I find life to be no fun anymore at home, and so I find some romance on the side because that's exciting. That's fun. Remember Potiphar's wife? Pleasure is what she pursued more than anything else to the extent that when she did not get what she wanted, she was willing to ruin somebody else's life over it. So what's the answer? How do you not go there? Right? If you're if you're here this morning and you're one of the, yep you you just described me to a T, Pastor. I I want to be like Barnabas, like good Barnabas, not bad Barnabas. I want to be like Lydia. I want to be like Priscilla. I certainly don't want to go to some of those routes that that you just described. How do I escape that? Well, the Word of God has some great wisdom for us this morning. Look at First Peter chapter one. Verse 13. This is the key to spiritual transformation. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded. He will use that phrase two more times in this very short letter. Apparently, while under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter thought that concept was important. 
sober-minded, and set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the answer. You don't need to not be an enthusiast. We need you. We need that relational mortar here in the body of Christ. You don't need to try to become somebody else. You just need to take who you are and, 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 and use that, leverage that in your own spiritual growth and become more like Jesus. <clears throat> become more like Jesus. But this will be a constant battle for you if you're an enthusiast. Because the temptation is always, well, the grass looks so much greener over there. Might be because you're not using enough fertilizer over here. Just throwing that out there. The way forward for an enthusiast is to grow spiritually, and that starts with a good, healthy dose of realism. This is where I am. This is where God has placed me. With all the things around me that are good and wonderful and pleasant, and also all the things around me that aren't so pleasant that I would, you know, if, if it were up to me, I'd just soon avoid it, try to get away from it, but I'm going to face it. And I'm going to face it with a level of sober mindedness, which means you stop living in the future all the time, start living in the present, stop living in an alternative make believe place you never imagined, and be faithful right here, right now. Your family, your spouse, your children, they need that from you. Because that's the only way you'll then be able to model for them what it looks like to be that relational mortar that we talked about. Your church family needs that from you. Because if you've got somebody who's relational mortar and they actually follow through on things and they're reliable, you've got a jewel in the midst of the body of Christ. Let me tell you something else, though. You as an enthusiast need that. Because it is Jesus' desire to conform you to his image. And that's exactly how you can do it. Because you see these characteristics in Jesus as well. Isn't it interesting that the first place he goes when he, when he rallies all of his disciples together. Can you, can you imagine? I've tried to put myself in that position in the shoes of Peter or the shoes of Andrew or Bartholomew or Thaddeus or someone else. And I, we've been waiting on the 12. We finally got them. Where are we going? We're going to a leper colony. We're going to somewhere where there's great need. We're going, how surprised do you think they were that their first stop was a wedding party? John chapter 2. They find themselves in Cana. A wedding party. Jesus was modeling for his people. This is where we're going because everything else we're going to do beyond this moment is about people. And so we're going to be there. He gathered his disciples. He was demonstrating to them that people matter. And then they run out of wine. He exemplifies the role of a, of a healthy enthusiast that that enthusiast can play. He didn't sulk about it. He didn't start looking for somewhere else where there's a real party going on. He helped solve the problem. And I'd like to think he was kind of popular for the way he solved that problem. He made more wine. And it turned out to be far better than what the, the host was serving in the first place. And in the middle of all that, he exemplified what it meant to make ministry about people. To make ministry. But here's the thing you need to know about Jesus. He didn't just do it because it was fun to do. I imagine he did have fun. I imagine he laughed. I imagine he danced. I imagine he had a wonderful time. 
But this was not just about the fun. There was a larger mission. There was a larger vision behind all of that because he had come here precisely for this reason. And, and, and this first public miracle, more than any other reason, was so that he could demonstrate who he was and meet the needs of the people there. How do we know that? Because just a few short years later, he will not be pain avoidant. He will bleed for those people. And that's the kind of thing he's calling you to do. You know, you can be an enthusiast and on the surface level, you can like people, you can attract people, you can encourage people, you can have all kinds of wonderful relationships with people. Did you know it's possible for all those things to be true of you as an enthusiast and yet you still not love them like Jesus loves them? You know what the difference is? Whether you're willing in those times when it's tempting to avoid the pain for you to step purposefully into what's going on and suffer with them. That is what Jesus did. That is what Jesus is calling you to do if you're an enthusiast. And by God's grace and in the power of the Spirit, that is exactly what you can do. And there is no stronger mortar. I'm telling you, hell itself cannot bust up a church that has people like that at the center holding it together. That's my prayer for you. Let's pray together. Lord, would you empower all of us here today, not just those that, that we've been talking about that your word addresses, but Father, most specifically, I, I pray for those that, that you have equipped in this way, that you have wired to be the relational glue that holds churches and families and even organizations together. Father, for everybody here today, we know that your desire is to conform us into the image of Jesus. But to do so in a way that is uniquely us. Father, you, just as you used 40 different authors with different personalities and different writing styles, we had to put together one singular word of God with one consistent message. Your desire is to create one body, but not in the process to squash or eliminate the various personalities in front of me that you have created. Father, your desire is to redeem them. And I pray that for each and every person that's here, that you would redeem them, that you would create in them who you created them to be, and that they would take their rightful place in this body of believers, that we would be stronger than we have ever been before. I make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already receive from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.